Hello and welcome to the National Museum's Liverpool podcast regarding the present. I'm Jane Garvey. Now, there are six episodes in this series, each one exploring a different theme with voices and experiences from the present and from the past, reflecting just some of the incredible stories in the museum's collections, programmes and communities. And we are spoilt for choice. There are so many stories. There are, after all, four million objects in the museum's collections. There's the Museum of Liverpool, the World Museum, the Maritime Museum, the International Slavery Museum, the Walker Art Gallery, the Lady Lever Art Gallery, and Sudley House. There's much to enjoy and a lot to learn. Earlier episodes have explored the themes of love, resilience, and work. In this one, we're looking at a subject that couldn't be more topical, isolation. Now, I used to think that I was really good with my own company, that I liked it even. But I realise now I just made that decision when I actually had a decent alternative. How many more walks around that park, sometimes going anti-clockwise just for the sheer thrill of it. And I never, ever want to do a quiz on Zoom again. My current ambitions are very modest. Right now, I'd settle for a good look around a non-essential shop and a drink with a friend outside, just about anywhere, wearing a quilted coat and a big woolly hat if necessary. But then I'm a middle-aged woman, not a teenage boy. You're about to meet Joseph, who's nearly 16 and missing everything about his old social life, especially the good times at a venue called The Beach. He talked to his uncle, Daniel O'Connor. Chad what? Champagne. Champagne? Yeah. Goodness me. How did it hit me? She was trying to kiss you. Bro, this is my nephew Joe. He's about to turn 16. Like most 16-year-olds, he's always concocting some story about what happened to him in school or at the underage nightclub. The stories normally involve everything a young man of his age isn't legally allowed to do, but a lot of us did. Joe is also a young man who has Down syndrome. I want you to tell me about the beach, the club. But need... It's what? Battle knees. It's special needs? Yes. And what's the music like? Scally. Scally? Yeah. Scally music? Yeah. Uh, Smoking. I don't think you smoke. You're not old enough to smoke. No, Scallies. Oh, the Scallies are smoking. And can you have a drink? Beer. Beer. Sandy. Shandy? Yeah. Non-alcoholic beer? No. No better one. And do, do all your mates go? Yeah, do yeah. What kind of mates? Dave. Dave. Nick Dave. Little man, little bridge, cash. He's got <laughs> a, little, a little man with a tash. Yeah. To go every week? Yeah, Thursday. On a Thursday. And now, because of coronavirus, you haven't been for a long time? No, short. It's short? Yeah. Pain. And how does that make you feel? Weird. Weird. For Joe's mum, Emma, those nights at the beach nightclub, was something of a godsend. It's for young adults. So Joseph absolutely loved it because prior to the beach, he'd only used um, places like Bubble Soft Play and that was for children under age 12. So once he got over that age, he didn't really have anything. And obviously, you know, youth clubs for after school and things were not suitable for Joseph because he's got diabetes type 1 as well. So he does need to have 
one-to-one support with him. Absolutely loved the beach nightclub. I was able to go with him, me DJ, dance, made some great friends there. And that was the highlight of his week. Another of Joe's favoured social activities was the weekly inclusion day at a youth club in Birkenhead called The Hive. The Hive has got to be seen to be believed. It's a bright modern facility with climbing walls, football pitches, basketball courts, film and music studios, state-of-the-art fitness suites, a culinary college-level kitchen, and more. Since Joe started going to The Hive, his progress in his communication and his confidence has been so remarkable that the Hive Ability team are currently writing a case study on him. What do you do in The Hive? Uh, music. You do music? Hey, art. And art? Yeah. Did you rock climbing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What else do you do? Football. Football? Downstairs. Downstairs. I thought, what's on the roof? Uh, the pitch. The pitch is on the roof? Yeah. So, you know, because of coronavirus? You stop it. They stopped it, the hive, because of coronavirus? Yeah. Did they? Now, do you have to just stay in your mum's flat? No, yeah, boy. It's boring. Right, okay, but do they do it on Zoom now? Yeah, they do. Yeah. No, we're not on Zoom. Not on Zoom? No. I think in your nose. It's what? A swab. Oh, yeah. So you do a test, so they put a thing in your nose, a swab in your nose. Nose, yeah. Yeah, and then you can throat. go and down your throat. Yeah. And then if you if it says negative, does that mean you can go to the nightclub? Yeah, it is. Yeah, and you can go to the hive and do climbing. Your mum is negative. Your mum is negative. As you can no doubt tell, Joe's got a fairly good grasp of the current coronavirus situation. As current restrictions lift, he's excited to be able to go back to the hive and go back to the beach nightclub. But we're 12 months in. It's not all been plain sailing. That switch to digital communication techniques, many of us have navigated fairly quickly, wasn't so easy for somebody like Joe. In fact, his mother says that when the Hive did pivot to Zoom meetings, Joe hated them. Because it felt to him like they were there and he was trapped at home. Those early days of coronavirus were particularly stressful and unsure times. In December 2019, Joseph was poorly. He was out of school all of December, all of January. And then obviously, um, February, we started hearing about coronavirus. And we were still sort of very cautious about him recovering from his last illness. So we, we kept him out of school. So for that whole period, he was kept home. The hive stopped, the beach nightclub stopped. So it was very much a case of, you know, just being locked at home with, with family. If you cast your mind back, Remember how confusing everything was at the start. Terms like furlough, social distancing, social bubbles, shielding, rapid flow, lateral testing, efficacy, they've just appeared in our conversation now like they're the most normal words on earth. But I remember I was constantly reading and trying to digest it all. Imagine how this was for people that didn't just have a learning difficulty, but also classed as critically extremely vulnerable. Andrea Bishop from the Down Syndrome Association told me what it was like for their community in those early days. We all saw the Prime Minister delivering information each evening at five o'clock. Somebody with Down syndrome may not have been able to understand those press conferences, all the things that were out in the media. So we worked hard to simplify that information, to put it into easy read formats. So that's getting information, for example, about what social distancing is. And we worked to create easy read uh, resources of that. So that would be a document with less words, more symbols, more pictures that we could give to people with Down syndrome so that they, they understood this new world that we were living in where you couldn't stand more than two 
metres apart from someone or this new world that we were living in where you had to wear, you know, face masks, etc. So um, a lot of our work turned to educating people and making sure people understood what the new new rules were. It isn't just the young people with Down syndrome that have been affected by the constant chopping and changing. The Down Syndrome Association's WorkFit scheme pairs employers with potential employees and supports both through the process. Work, just like school and those social activities, is an absolute lifeline for adults with Down syndrome. But as COVID hit, people with Down syndrome were placed on the shielding list. Employment was pretty much wiped out. Many of the people on the WorkFit scheme were furloughed. Sadly, some people were made redundant. And in a couple of exceptional cases, people were supported to work from home. It was only literally on the 1st of April that people with Down syndrome, um, adults over 18, came off the critically extremely vulnerable list. So that meant that they could start going back to work. So lots of our WorkFit candidates have started to go back to work. Let me tell you, though, they are so happy to be going back. They're absolutely thrilled to be going back, which is just brilliant. But, you know, the statistics are that in the year 2019 to 2020, just 5.6% of people with learning disabilities were in paid employment in England. And what we do know is that at least 65% of people with learning disabilities want to work. So there's a disparity there, isn't there? Um And there is a big pool of people, talented people out there, you know, that want jobs. We know that the benefits of being in employment are absolutely huge for people with Down syndrome. There's, of course, the financial benefits, but also the social sort of benefits of having work friends, being part of a workplace, that being part, you know, of a team. You know, lots of our WorkFit candidates tell us that having a job makes them feel valued as part of society and it gives them worth. You know, it it also gives them a routine and something to focus on, you know, and it actually just enables people with Down syndrome to feel more independent. It's about self-esteem. It's about mental health. And it's sort of having a job is about giving a massive confidence boost So that you're just like everybody else out there, part of the community, part of a workforce, you know, part of society. So, yeah, we know that having a job and employment is really beneficial um, for people with Down syndrome. So we would just appeal to anybody and everybody to consider whether they could be more inclusive in their employment. Earlier in the story, Joe's mum Emma mentioned that Joseph was poorly in December 2019. Poorly is the understatement of the century. Just before Christmas, we were told while Joseph was on life support at Alderhey Hospital to prepare for the worst. Being the fighter that Joe is, he pulled through and he made a remarkable turnaround fairly quickly. But the really strange thing is that the symptoms Joe first reported to hospital with were remarkably similar to that of coronavirus. His subsequent deterioration maps almost precisely to those worst affected with the virus. Because of the time frame, it's difficult to now test for antibodies. And there are lots of similar respiratory diseases that follow this route. But if Joe did have COVID, it'd have been a full month before the first reported cases in the UK. Do we think Joe was patient zero? (laughs) Well, I've I've beat that drum for about six months, convinced he was. Um, But people sort of um, laugh at me now. But I mean, it's highly likely because it just had 
a virus, he went downhill really fast. He couldn't keep his blood pressure up. His kidneys took a hit. He then had to go over into intensive care in Alder Hay. So we spent Christmas over there. And when we watch the news, it seems quite similar. You know, some of the people who've had bad cases of COVID and also we couldn't find anything else. He had a lumbar puncture for meningitis, tests to grow cultures and nothing at all grew back. At the last clinic that we had, they said at that time, they were not sure how long the antibodies lasted for. And we were in July of last year and he'd contracted it at the beginning of December. So they said it was unlikely that he'd have antibodies anyway, so there'd be no way of knowing. I consoled myself in thinking he'd had it and hoped he wouldn't get it again. But then when it came out that you can catch it again, we had to go back to, you know, being super careful with him. For many of us, this year of isolation has been tough. I'm a bit greyer. I'm a bit older. I've piled on some lockdown pounds and I've got no excuse. But for Joe, who's been under some of the strictest rules and had some of his most prized liberties stripped away, you wouldn't know. He's straight back to it. He's he's happy. He lives in the moment. He's he's not one for overthinking things. And, you know, even his medications, the, some of them are absolutely disgusting. And you can tell on his face, he's on a new one. And this morning, he just didn't like it. We just had it. And then necked a crumpet and got on with it. Well, I'm more of an Eccles Cape woman myself. But if it works for you, Joe, you go with it. That was Joseph's mum, Emma. And it's good to hear that you made such a good recovery. I hope the beach is back up and running as soon as possible. It's really hard to think of anywhere that sounds further from Merseyside than the Indian Ocean island of Socotra, home to the frankincense tree. Now that does sound remote. It's actually a World Heritage Site, officially part of Yemen, and its truly astonishing ecological importance was recorded in a dusty old tome at Liverpool's World Museum, rediscovered during lockdown. Here's Megan McGurk. Over the last year, many of us have felt isolated, and with good reason. Cut off from friends and family, we naturally felt alone. Yet we have all surely felt alone in a crowded city, or scrolling on social media. Passing many faces, you somehow still feel apart. It seems isolation, and togetherness, are not always what they seem. In this next story, we travel to the unlikely island of Socotra, Part of the Socotra archipelago, off the coast of Yemen, this beautiful island is a small dot surrounded by Indian Ocean. However, its story is one of connection to our history, community and planet. I've been aware of them for a long time since pretty much I started at the museum. I've been working there for about two years now uh, because it's such an important collection. This is Dr John James Wilson, curator of vertebrae zoology at the World Museum. The book's always been there on the shelf, but I never actually had gone looked in detail. He's talking about Henry Og Forbes's book on his expedition to Socotra in 1898. During lockdown, John had time to dust off these notes. A great comfort, they allowed him to continue his travels and research through the words of Forbes, predecessor and fellow ornithologist. As a field biologist myself, I'm able to kind of put myself into the into that position of what it would have been like a hundred years ago. But you can feel kind of part of history. They basically had the same job that I have now. It's almost like a family tree. The expedition saw director of Liverpool Museum, or World Museum today, 
Forbes, team up with W.R. Ogilvy Grant at the British Museum's Bird Room, now the Natural History Museum, for what ended up an 11-week expedition to the island. Identified in 1880 as a rich land for scientific discovery, Socotra is only the size of Cornwall, yet it packs in stretches of white beaches and sandy dunes, rocky mountains, caves and lagoons. It's said that you can stand almost anywhere on the island and always see the magnificent blue sea. It's this isolated nature that drives its incredible biodiversity. Think of the dodo of Mauritius or Charles Darwin's Galapagos finches. Islands, they're special when it comes to unique species. And Socotra, which is known as the Galapagos of the Indian Ocean, is no exception. Not only is Socotra home to 307 endemic plant species, including the cucumber tree and the red-sapped dragonblood tree, but also to 11 endemic species of bird. You may not have guessed it, but that was the call of a male Socotra grosbeak flirting with the female. Using Forbes' sheet music, scribed on the expedition, it was recreated by John on his Irish tin whistle. The Socotra grosbeak is just one of the endemic birds discovered by Forbes and Ogilvy Grant, many of which are in our collection today. While fruitful, Forbes' expedition had its challenges including severe sunburn and even malaria. But the serenity of the island was always there to comfort them, as John describes. When the expedition party came down with malaria, they gingerly moved higher into the Hadjia Mountains for the relief of cooler temperatures and the sea breeze. Uh, the view itself also provided a tonic to their suffering. At the Adda Pass, too, they were soothed by, soothed to sleep by what Forbes described as the song of the setting sun. Uh, the call of the Socotra Scops Owl, cradling them to sleep. Today, Socotra continues to be a source of fascination and research. Um, I'm sat in a garden of a friend of mine. This is Dr Kay Van Dam, Belgian freshwater biologist, speaking to us directly from the island. I see a date palm tree in the garden and there is one endemic, uh, unique um, frankincense tree in this garden, which he planted himself from cutting and which is now uh, quite a large uh, tree after many years. Growing frankincense trees from cuttings is common practice in Socotra. It's an attempt to save the endangered tree, one of the main reasons Kay is on the island. I'm here to help uh, in awareness and protection and uh, conservation and replanting of the unique frankincense trees of Socotra. I'm here as part of a group to help in ensuring that things like cyclones or overuse or overgrazing don't drive these trees to extinction. The group is an international collaboration between the Environmental Protection Authority of Yemen, a group of European universities and local staff, and it's spurred by the people of Socotra. And here on Socotra, people actually really uh, depend and need, need these trees, plus they like them. Um, they have a strong um, cultural t uh, link to them, which is historically very strong, very long, just as they have with the dragon blood tree. Therefore, it's part of their cultural identity and it's answering to their request. It's not, uh, it's not driven by our need as researchers to, to do this. This community connection makes all the difference for the frankincense tree. 
but it's not the only thing under threat. Like so many islands around the world, Socotra feels the concentrated sting of climate change. Kay is not only a researcher, but chairperson of the UK-based initiative Connect to Socotra. The campaign was launched in 2019 by UNESCO and the Friends of Socotra Association. Since then, many botanical gardens, academic institutions and museums have held events to connect Socotra to the world. But Kay is very specific about this connection. Socotra to me is a fascinating place full of knowledge and full of wisdom. It's a, an open museum full of amazing species and packed with uh, wisdom and culture that is unique in the world. But it is equally rich as it is fragile. So to me, I'm always very aware of the fragility of this place as well as the richness of its knowledge. Um, I could compare it to a, a book of which there's only one copy left in the entire world. And the book is packed with wisdom and packed with knowledge for humanity. Um, and on the other hand, it's extremely fragile to the touch. So it means if you would open it too much or you touch the book too much, the papers would slowly disintegrate and the knowledge would be lost forever. Connect to Socotra's awareness campaign is not to attract crowds of tourists to its beaches. It's to share the otherworldly beauty of the island, whilst reminding us that, whether consciously or not, we are connected to it. When we throw a bottle of plastic uh, outside or we are um, using the car one day too much, we are creating problems in other areas in the world, such as here, uh, where climate change effects have been huge. So being uh, aware of these uh, threats can help us um, save as much as, um, can, can make us also more responsible and spiritual as humans in connection to nature. So our impacts are felt in other areas in the world. So whatever we do is, uh, is important, um, even on a local scale, because it has global consequences. When I ask Kay if he feels isolated camping out on Socotra expeditions, his answer surprises me. Like Forbes and Gilvy Grant exploring the island back in 1898, like John reflecting on the legacy of his academic career, Kay, rather than feeling isolated, feels part of something bigger. When I'm on Socotra, I feel part of something more ancient and continuous than all of us. This feeling is important to me as a human and as a biologist. I feel in awe with how nature has shaped the landscapes when witnessing the impressive granite mountains or the ancient dragon's blood forest and the power of the sea. I feel therefore connected to the island spiritually. At the same time, I feel a deep admiration for the indigenous people of Socotra, having maintained their culture and unique language for countless generations while coping with the elements on a daily basis. And despite their hardships, the indigenous people of Socotra have always been hospitable and kind to me in all these years, while I'm conscient of the fact that they have to survive in truly difficult conditions. Yet they have never failed to greet me with a smile or a good cup of tea with milk. When I'm home, the connection to the island's nature and people remains. I guess somewhere along the way, some dragon's blood found its way to my heart and decided to stay. That's Kay Van Dam on the connection, the very real connection he feels, to the splendid isolation offered by the island of Socotra. And you also heard from Dr John James Wilson and digital content producer Megan McGurk.
Now, if you've ever struggled to get an uncooperative vehicle into a dodgy parking space under pressure, then you'll no doubt, like me, have had sympathy for whoever was responsible for the plight of the enormous cargo ship, the Ever Given, wedged right across the Suez Canal, blocking it for precisely six days and seven hours. It must have been desperate for a crew really keen to get home. But you think that's bad? How about this? Try eight years. Daniel O'Connor explores the forgotten story of the 14 ships stranded in the canal after the Six-Day War between Israel and Egypt in 1967. When we were devising this series, the idea was to take a theme, pick one modern-day story on it, and then explore how, through our rich collections, those themes are repeated throughout history. The curators at the Maritime Museum pitched a story back in December that at the time felt interesting, perhaps a little bit difficult to relate to. I was worried about how we could bring it to life. Then, on the 23rd of March, 2021, the Ever Given ran aground and catapulted the Suez Canal to front and centre of the news. My name is Kath Senka, and I am the author of Strands in the Six-Day War, which is a book about the merchant ships that were trapped in the Suez Canal in the 1967 war. Yes, the Suez Canal. It's something we've all been educated on a great deal in the past month. In 1967, the canal was, despite being narrower than it is today, equally as important to global trade. Despite escalating tensions either side of the waterway between Israel and Egypt, it remained a popular route. Suddenly, very suddenly, that changed. When the war broke out on the 5th of June 1967, the Egyptians closed the canal pretty much instantly. They scuttled ships at the, at the ends of the canal so that nobody could pass through. And 14 merchant ships were, were actually trapped. The first thing they knew of it when they, they saw Israeli planes coming over the Suez Canal first thing in the morning and starting to hit the Egyptian installations, oil installations. And of course, they had no idea what, what was going on. A day or two became eight years for these 14 ships isolated from the rest of the world in a no-man's land between warring nations. Many of the people on board were on their way home to see families they'd not seen in weeks. Initially, they were in this sort of limbo, not knowing when or even if they'd be given permission to leave. They were essentially hostages, who at first couldn't even contact their loved ones. I mean, that was a huge issue to begin with because first nobody really knew what was going on. And after the first few days, the Egyptians actually forbade the ships to use their radios because I think they were scared of sensitive information getting across to Israelis. Now, what happened was the, I mean, the captains maintained contact with their shipping companies and the shipping companies, and certainly in the, the British case, Blue Funnel, the company in Liverpool, they got in touch with all the relatives to let them know what was going on. And they sent them telegrams to sort of just tell them what was happening and to let them know that their relatives were safe. And there were some radio broadcasts. The BBC put out some radio broadcasts where uh, some of the relatives, um, you know, they kind of wanted to, songs to be played, like, uh, I think, we've got to get out of this place by the animals. That was a popular one. You know, they put out, you know, a song, a record to let their loved ones in the Great Bitter know that they were thinking of them. Without the communication from the outside world, the ships, who were from nations that were at either side of the Cold War, started to form a community amongst themselves, even joking that they'd formed a United Nations rather more successfully than the real thing. 
Captain Brian McManus of the Liverpool-based Blue Funnel Line ships suggested that this was partly due to the nature of seafaring. The one thing in common that seafarers of all nations possess, he said, is their ability to get along with most other people. It is a necessity of sea life, where men of different upbringing, sometimes colour, certainly very often creed, live and work together. The one thing which is greater amongst seafarers than people ashore is companionship. Uh, the crews on the ships got in touch for their own survival because when they were first trapped there, you know, they didn't know how long they were going to be there. And the first thing, they were getting in touch with each other over the radio saying, hey, you know, guys, we're running short of water or have you guys got any eggs? You know, there, were, there was this kind of, you know, they just need for fresh food and water to start with and the different ships with their vastly different cargoes were, were able to supply each other. And as it became clear that they were going to be there for, you know, days, weeks, months, who knew, those contacts developed and they thought, okay, well, we're not going to just sit on our own in our own ships. We, you know, we'll make contacts. And they used the lifeboats to kind of get around on, on, on the lake to visit each other and to swap materials. It did take a few months for a kind of real community to develop in terms of an organised community. And that happened in October 67, when the I think the captains uh, of some of the ships were a little bit concerned about the kind of welfare of, of the crews. I mean, yes, they, you know, there was plenty of beer and, you know, a few drinks were had and there were movies and, and books to read. But they kind of thought, you know, maybe we can maybe we can do a little bit more in terms of getting people together and doing some kind of healthy and interesting activities. So there was a move to set up uh, the Great Bitter Lake Association. And this association had as its members everybody who was on, on the Great Bitter Lake. All the crew uh, were automatically members. The GBLA got together every Sunday under the name of church. The reasons being that the Egyptians had forbade the ships from meeting socially, but not religiously. The association's remit was essentially to keep up the morale of the crew. By the end of 1967, there had been successful negotiations to replace those first crews with a rotating relief crew, whose duty it was to ensure these ships with such precious cargo would be ready to go. But such was the bond forming with the GBLA, the crews had become ever more creative. In 1968, the GBLA held its own mini Olympic Games with 14 sports. It attracted global interest, with the likes of the Daily Express sponsoring Team GB by supplying strips and trophies. Although the crews were safe and the ships in working order, there was little chance of them moving. The Six-Day War and the War of Attrition that followed had seen bridges destroyed, ships sunk, mines deployed, the debris of which made the Suez Canal unnavigable. Some of the stranded crew were reunited at the 50-year anniversary of the canal's closing in the Maritime Museum in 2017. One of the topics of conversation that day was about the new skills that they all learned during that time. These are mostly ordinary guys trapped in extraordinary circumstances. And they actually, in some ways, had the opportunity to develop talents and skills that they may not have done in in regular life, you know, they became artists or sports people or excellent cooks. So again, and that's something that perhaps people today have been thinking about, things they wouldn't have otherwise had, had the space or the opportunity to do. After Egypt's President Nasser died in 1970, his successor, President Sabat, 
signed a peace treaty with Israel, which eventually led to the cleanup and reopening of the canal in 1974. After months of clearance operations, it was finally possible for, for the ships to go through. And then there was a great kind of uh, ceremony to reopen it. And President Sadat said, you know, the Suez Canal is now open and it will remain open, which it mostly has. That's Kath Senker, author of the book Stranded in the Six-Day War. She was talking to Daniel O'Connor. And if you'd like to know more about everything we've talked about or you want to catch up with previous episodes, go to liverpoolmuseums.org.uk. You have been listening to a podcast by National Museums Liverpool. As we record, we're still not open, but we're gearing up to do so in May. In the meantime, you can explore our collections online and support us by donating. Head to liverpoolmuseums.org.uk forward slash donate. Regarding the Present was presented by Jane Garvey, story by Daniel O'Connor and Megan McGurk, post-production by Sam at Onomatopoeia Post Productions, artwork by Safa Khan, and our music is by Big Giant Circles.